Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. Last November, an article in The Atlantic, written by retired Admiral James Winnefeld, made an immediate impact on the opioid epidemic, helping to chip away at the stigma of addiction. Here's how he began his article. No family is safe from this epidemic. As an admiral, I helped to run the most powerful military on earth, but I couldn't save my son from the scourge of opioid addiction. Joining me today is retired Navy Admiral James Sandy Winnefeld, who graduated from Georgia Tech University with a degree in aerospace engineering and subsequently served 37 years in the United States Navy. He has served at the highest levels of government, including vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the second highest position in the entire military. He even advised the crew during the filming of Top Gun in 1986 when he was an instructor. The Admiral is here to tell his family's story in the hope of sparing other families the heartbreaking loss they have felt. So, Admiral, welcome. Greg, it's great to be on your program, and I really appreciate the opportunity. And thank you for what you're doing every day to uh, help uh, the state of Ohio and this nation overcome this epidemic. So let's start back at the beginning. Tell us a little bit about Jonathan, your son. Well, Jonathan uh, grew up in a military family, moving around uh, as military families do uh, quite a lot. Uh, The younger brother of a very successful uh, young man who just graduated from the Naval Academy this this year. Um, Very uh, quiet, uh, friendly, smart kid who was a very good athlete. He was going to be the pitcher on his high school baseball team. Uh, Didn't have an enemy in the world. Just a, a tremendous young man, uh, but uh, all along struggled with uh, anxiety and depression. Uh, And that is ultimately what led to his addiction. He was self-medicating to treat his his mental affliction that so many young people have these days. uh, And that's what what took him into uh, the, the death spiral of addiction. I asked about the role his son's misdiagnosis for ADD had in him going down the path of addiction. Well, um, the problem with that misdiagnosis is is that it led to a prescription for Adderall, which is a methamphetamine. And it's probably the worst thing you can give somebody who um, has anxiety. So Jonathan started self-medicating to bring himself down from the Adderall at night. We noticed that there was a little bit of alcohol missing from time to time, and he was very upfront about it. He said, I just, I just need something to help me come down from, from this Adderall. Um, and so I, I, you know, that was a contributing factor in his uh, entry into addiction. Next, the Admiral spoke about how his son's car accident was a wake-up call for the family to get their son help. Uh, over the summer before his senior year of high school, Jonathan started using, um, we thought, just alcohol and marijuana. Uh, and maybe a little bit of Xanax uh, along the way. Uh, that led it, you know, he was doing fine then. He'd gotten into a couple of colleges early, that sort of thing. Uh, but it affected his grades, which is a key warning signal for parents, uh, in the fall of his senior year. 
Uh, two things then happened. One, he lost a girlfriend who was going to be the first person in her family ever to go to college, and she did not want to be burdened by a kid who was struggling with all these demons. And then, because of his grades, he was not allowed to play baseball uh, spring of his senior year. And th- that was, those two gut punches really hit Jonathan hard, uh, in, a, you know, in addition to his uh, anxiety and depression. And he uh, had a couple of episodes. We, we had him seeing a psychologist. We had him seeing a counselor. We were looking at trying to get him into uh, outpatient, intensive outpatient treatment, but there was no room for him in the Washington, D.C. area at any program we could find. So we were alert to this. We were not aware of any opioid use, but we were alert to this. And then when he had this big moment, that is when we decided he can't come home. He's not safe here. We have to get him into long-term inpatient treatment, which after a frantic, difficult week of searching, we found a place uh, where he would fit in. And you talk about how difficult it was to find the right treatment facility for him. Can you speak to the challenges associated with that, finding the right, the right facility? Well, uh, as though there weren't enough challenges already, because every substance-dependent person has a different set of characteristics, and every treatment facility is also different. It's almost a match.com problem of trying to get get the right place for your loved one. Uh, If that wasn't enough, we had two complicating factors. One was the fact that John was about three weeks away from his 18th birthday, and there are a lot of places who will either only take adolescents, minors, or they'll only take adults. And John was, was so much on the cusp that he couldn't really go to either one uh, in, uh, in, 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 in many of those places. And the other problem was the military health care system uh, just really didn't have an understanding of addiction. And it didn't, uh, definitely didn't have an understanding of the dual diagnosis of a mental health issue along with addiction. So they just, they just were not prepared to help us find the, the few treatment centers out there who actually handled both of those problems, addiction and mental health. So we ended up uh, finding a place ourselves, paying for it ourselves, uh, spent a lot of money on this. But it was a very, very frustrating process for us. And that one of our goals as in our nonprofit is to try to help families navigate that process much more quickly and much more effectively. Next, we spoke about some of the warning signs that you can observe when someone is going down the road to addiction. Yeah, and I think it all starts back in elementary school uh, where you just need to understand uh, where your son or daughter sort of fits in. Are they comfortable? Uh, are, they, are they being misdiagnosed with ADD? Are they just are they suffering from anxiety or depression? What kind of, are they a follower or a leader? Who do they hang around with? Just kind of watching and getting a, a, a feel for your son or daughter with this in mind, not just you know, a general feel. And then uh, certainly as uh, your child passes into adolescence and some of these uh, drug uses are starting to happen in, in um, middle school, certainly in high school, watching for uh, their attitude, whether they're evasive, whether you can have a conversation with them, which is hard enough with any teenager, but are their grades beginning to suffer? Uh, who are they hanging around with? Uh, any other suspicious behaviors? Just the, the real key is to not let hope become a strategy. This is my son. He's a good kid. He's going to come out of this. He's just hanging around with the wrong people, uh, and we can fix that, uh, when very often there may be a, a deeper problem uh, that is starting to spiral into an addictive uh, situation. So you got him the help that he needed. It cost quite a bit. It was out of pocket. Um and after 15 months, though, you felt as though he was back to his old self. Speak to yeah, that. Yeah, Jonathan really responded. You know, initially, he told us that uh, this was the worst mistake we'll ever make. He was resistant to it. 
uh, the treatment piece, but over time he, he grew to understand that he needed to do this, he needed to stick with it, and uh, we started to see our son come back. Uh, his, his brain was literally physically recovering from the physiology of the addictive state he had been in. So we were able to have a conversation with him. He, uh, his ambitions returned. He wanted to do two things. <clears throat> he got his emergency medical technician qualification, did really well at that. He was very excited about that, enjoyed that. It was really cool to see Jonathan doing something that he really loved to do. And then he decided he also wanted to go to college because he wanted to end up as a paramedic fireman, and he knew that, that having EMT qualification and a college degree was going to help him uh, on that pathway that he wanted to uh, follow. So he was doing really well. Uh, to those who say treatment doesn't work, I strongly counter that. Uh, our son was recovering right before our eyes. So he was doing everything that he needed to do. In fact, he was even leading some of the AA meetings, right? But, yeah, uh, which is... For, for Jonathan, it, it, it was, you know, man bites dog uh, when we heard that Jonathan was actually uh, responding in that way to where he would actually lead a meeting because when he first started his treatment, he didn't like the meeting. So it was, I don't need to hear from these other people. I know what's wrong with me. I can fix this myself. Uh, and progressing all the way to the point where he's actually leading other people in meetings was uh, quite a surprise for us, a pleasant surprise. Pretty extraordinary. Kind of out of character from the Jonathan that you knew, but it worked. Yeah, absolutely. So that summer, so he was accepted to go to school in Denver, and that summer he worked on a uh, an essay. Tell us a little bit about that essay because I think that that was pretty important to his story. Yeah, it it was it was a a dual edged sword in in a sense, in that uh, every incoming freshman to the University of Denver is required to write an essay and read a book. Uh, the, The whole school reads this book, and this last year. The book that they read was J.D. Vance's uh, Hillbilly Elegy, which tells, of course, the story of a young man who comes from one of the most drug-afflicted portions of the country and finds his way uh, on a difficult path to success. So the question posed in the essay this year for these incoming freshmen was, who has had the most profound impact on your life? And, of course, we as parents would (laughs) expect that it be one of us. But, in fact, John wrote this very moving, very powerful short essay about an experience he had while he was getting his EMT qualification and he was on an ambulance ride and found himself in the bathroom of a McDonald's in New Haven, Connecticut, administering CPR to uh, a man undergoing heroin overdose. And he writes that, you know, the person who's had the most profound impact on my life is somebody I don't even know. I've never met him. I don't know if he's still alive. I don't know if he has a family. And he goes on to describe this scene. And at the end, he says, uh, this caused me to realize that I want to dedicate my life to helping people who cannot help themselves, uh, and, and I want to be in this profession. Uh, very, very powerful, moving essay, which w- w- only went further to convince uh, my wife and I that Jonathan has was in, deep in recovery, that he was doing extremely well if he could write an essay like that. So, meanwhile, that summer, he was also taking a course, right? Right. So, he, he got his EMT qualification in Connecticut. And he wanted to uh, employ himself part-time while he was going to college as an EMT in Colorado. And Colorado accepted his national qualification but said, you know, we'd really like it if you'd have an EKG call uh, to complement your EMT call. So we felt, hey, this is perfect. We'll pull John out of his treatment. He'll have a month to go before school starts. We'll bring him down gradually, get him you know, adjusted back into society. And the last part of this will be exposing him to the academic environment of this EKG qualification. Uh, at night school. And so we enrolled him in a program in Denver 
at uh, right across the street from Denver Health at this beautiful paramedic training facility uh, three nights a week, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, from 6 to 10 o'clock at night uh, for two weeks. And what we didn't realize at the time is that it's right next door to Denver's outdoor heroin market. I asked the Admiral to describe what an open-air heroin market was. Yeah, it's an open-air heroin market that is open every night in, in, uh, in Denver. Uh, you, you know, there are dealers out there lounging around, and you, if you walk by, they'll offer you heroin. And um, if, you, if that's what you're in the market for, you'll be able to buy it fairly easily, hmm. uh, which is immensely frustrating to us as parents, not having known that. Uh, we never would have allowed him to be in that kind of a situation had we known. Sure. sure. Even though we were, not, we were not even aware that he was, was really a heavy opioid user. Uh, but still, we would never expose our son to that, and it's immensely frustrating to us that, that happened. Yeah. Okay. Uh, take it from there, then. Yeah, so he, so he relapsed uh, just before he entered uh, school. And, and we, did not, we could not tell that he relapsed, frankly, because we were not smart enough to see the signs. Uh, and the weekend before we, uh, he entered school, we took him up to the mountains where we have a home and just relaxed a little bit. And we noticed that John was a little edgy, um, a little nervous, sweating a bit. And we just, because again, we were not really fully in tune to his opioid usage. We just attributed it to nervousness, natural Jonathan nervousness about uh, starting college the next week and to maybe too much uh, medication for his, his anxiety or something like that. And we didn't realize that Jonathan was in withdrawal, actually, that weekend because he didn't have access to the opioids uh, when he was with us. So you dropped him off, went away, thinking, you know what? Okay, he was a little edgy, but I think he's in a good place. He's certainly headed in the right direction, and he's done great in his recovery. He's working the plan, so I think we're good here. This is a new page in his life. Uh, college, and it's an exciting time, but a nervous time, and we're all good. So three days later, you got the call that is every parent's nightmare. Yeah, you know, we the day we dropped him off, you know, we left our house in the mountains and drove down to Denver. He was bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. He looked as sharp as as you can imagine. Uh, excited, uh, helpful, happy. Uh, at lunch that day, um, when Jonathan and I were alone for a moment. I asked him, John, do you think you can handle this? Do you think you can handle this academic environment, uh, you know, starting college? He goes, Dad, I can definitely handle this as long as I can keep my recovery on track. You know, recognize he had, re- he had relapsed two weeks before this, and we didn't know it, but he's, he looked so sharp that day. And then um, it was three days later that I got the phone call uh, that we had lost our son. Wow. One of the most shocking calls you can possibly imagine. No idea that he would be using uh, heroin and in this case, it was fentanyl-laced heroin uh, and devastating, as you can imagine. In little more than two months, you were out there. You were talking about this, talking about this experience. That's incredible. That's so difficult to do. How were you able to, to pull it together and do that, Admiral? Well, we, you know, in the days following... Um, the loss. We were getting emails from friends. Uh, thankfully, it's terribly important to support people who go through this. And people were offering, you know, should we send flowers? Is there a place we can donate? And we felt that 
uh, with the network of people we we know with with whatever ability we have gained in how to get things done over the course of a 37 year military career that we would feel awful if we didn't try to lend a hand and help the country reverse this epidemic we could have crawled into a little ball of anger shame and grief and we don't regret anybody who does that that because this is so hard but we felt like we might have a bit of a bully pulpit and the ability to help so we sort of uh hitched up our trousers and decided to do that. It's um, it's a combination of things. One, uh, we feel it is an obligation. Uh, two, we think it's, for me, it's therapeutic to know that we're doing everything we can to try to prevent any other families from going through this terrible tragedy. Uh, and it's just, it's just the right thing to do. And, and I think uh, also, if we can stand up and talk openly about this, then perhaps we can attack some of the stigma that's associated with this problem. Because that's probably enemy number one of reversing this epidemic is the stigma that goes along with uh, addiction. I think it is. Absolutely. So you and your wife founded SAFE, Stop the Addiction Fatality Epidemic. So let's talk a little bit about the six lines of operation uh, for, uh, for SAFE. Right. We decided to organize our effort around what we think are the six things the country needs to do in order to reverse the epidemic. And all six of them are very tightly interrelated, but they're distinct enough that we can program to them and, and hire people to carry out programs. And so uh, in, the, in the amount of time we probably have, the, the first one is uh, public awareness, which is about gathering public support, educating the public so they understand that this is, you know, a disease, not a moral issue, uh, and, and to lower the stigma. The second one is prevention, which is a targeted, uh, appropriate credible messages to the right audiences to try to help prevent people from falling into this uh, deadly spiral in the first place, probably principally high school kids, but also college and workplaces and, and other areas that we're going to be penetrating. Uh, the third one is prescription medicine, which has a whole host of things that need to be done, ranging from getting the pharmaceutical companies to own up to what they've been doing and to stop it and to help us fix this problem all the way to doctors and dentists who need, uh, particularly an older generation of doctors and dentists who need to be much more responsible about prescribing opioids, down to smart consumers, signage and hospitals, uh, safe take-back programs, and a whole host of things within the pharmaceutical piece. The next one is law enforcement and medical response. Uh, things we would call smart justice, uh, drug courts, uh, pre-arrest programs, uh, all the way to helping jails and prisons uh, you know, help their populations come off of this because when their these inmates are released, they can go right back into the same behavior. Uh, uh, making sure that first responders and a number of other people have access to naloxone, which, as you know, is the ov overdose reducing or reversing drug uh, that will bring somebody out of an overdose. The next line of operation is treatment and recovery. Uh, certainly, there's not enough uh, treatment available. It's not accessible enough. It's not affordable enough in this country. And people just don't know, like we were in the situation, we just don't know where to go. Uh, uh, and and we're, we have a big project where we are putting together a web application to try to help families uh, do, do the, the best they can to quickly find the treatment place for a loved one. And then the last one is family outreach and support. And this is all about if we only knew then what we know now, we would still have our son with us. And the most important part of that, even though it ranges all the way from elementary school through whatever, the most important part of that, uh, where where we um, failed, basically, because we didn't have the knowledge required to succeed, is in the transition out of inpatient treatment, which is the most critical and vulnerable time for somebody 
to get that transition back into society done the right way rather than the wrong way. So that's that's what we're doing, and we have we've aligned those six areas under two main thrusts. One is what we call safe communities, and the other is safe campuses. And I can get into into those more if you'd like. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so safe campuses. Um, there there's a wide range among campuses across this country for how they approach uh, recovery uh, among their student population. To say nothing of prevention, some campuses uh, sort of have wished this away. They don't do anything. Uh, there's still stigma there. They don't want parents walking around campus seeing posters for, you know, if you're addicted, seek help here, you know, whatever. And then there, at the other end of the spectrum, some real gold standard campuses out there. I would name, uh, among others, Texas Tech, Rutgers, Baylor, who have really strong recovery programs. And then there's everything in between. So we're partnering with a, a group called the Association of Recovery and Higher Education that uh, is fostering campus recovery programs across the country, trying to raise all boats with a a series of best practices that campuses can do. So that's one major thrust. Another is safe communities. Uh, There are communities out there, there's a a number in in Ohio that are uh, doing great things where the community has stood up and decided to take this epidemic on, you know, frontally. Uh, And that requires a few things to happen. One is to get all the stakeholders together, and there are about 10 of them. You know, a county government, law enforcement, medical, dental, um, education, the uh, civic groups, uh, faith-based groups, business groups, the recovery community itself, uh, the treatment community, youth groups, and bring all those people together. And if they can empathize with each other and, and realize that there's a problem that is addressable, then they can start their community effort, uh, which requires a little bit of a survey to make sure you understand your own community and its unique problems. And then we have been going around the country gathering best practices from communities that have decided to do this. And our intent, and we'll be rolling this out in the near future, is to provide a menu to these communities where they can design their own program because communities do not want to be told what to do. They just want to, you know, they know their community better than anybody else. But we want to give them the menu of best practices, best practices so we can make sure that they're you know, they're able to select the right tools for, to handle their particular problem. So that's safe communities, uh, a whole host of efforts going on within both of those lines. Um, we're excited about uh, progress over the next year. Next, the Admiral shares some examples of some of the best practices that they've discovered. One of the best practices uh, would be in the pharmaceutical side, where we visited this uh, little hospital in Park City, Utah, that has the most amazing uh, opioid education program for patients and for doctors. Uh, the signage on elevator doors, on um, uh, reception counters, on tables and cafeterias, all warning about um, the dangers of using opioids for pain relief is extraordinary. They've got a data scientist there who is helping their doctors understand their prescription practices and trying to get those uh, more fine-tuned. Uh, and every screensaver in the hospital is a warning about opioid use. So, so that's you know, that's in the pharmaceutical line of operation, uh, a, a best practice, and we're going to try to help spread that around the country if we can. Uh, and then there are a number of other things, warm handoff, for example, if somebody has an overdose and they're brought into an emergency room, if all they are is treated and sent back out on the street, well, they're they're going to be after their next dose because their opioid receptors have been stripped and now they're in withdrawal. They want to get out of withdrawal. They're going to seek another dose. So with warm handoff, there are medication-assisted treatment drugs that they can be administered immediately that will get those cravings under control. And and if they can then be referred to treatment, they have a really good chance compared to somebody who's just put back out on the street. Uh, A whole host of other best practices, uh, getting into high schools and really talking thoughtfully 
to people in the high schools. Um, it's not a just say no campaign. It's a just say K-N-O-W campaign <laughs> so that the, the kids really get smart on what's really going on in their bodies when they take opioids. I like that. I, again. So, I mean, there's just a dizzying array of best practices within all those six lines of operation that we can offer to a community. And how soon do you expect to publish that? We are um, ex- going to experiment here probably in the next couple of months with a community in Kentucky and a community in North Carolina. And then we're going we're gonna to be learning even more. We're hoping to have a convening uh, either this fall or early next year where we're going to invite uh, willing uh, needy and able communities from across the country to D.C. to uh, to uh, have have one of these convening events that's not just about, you know, pontificators pontificating. It's going to be a hard-hitting, fast-action exchange of information along these six lines of operation where uh, we learn and the communities learn together about how to address this epidemic. So we're going to have a, a um, essentially a workbook, a notebook out, I'm hoping here in the next couple of months, where we'll be able to give that to anybody who needs it. Uh, and, and really, it's, it, we're not trying to tell people what to do. We're just trying to arm them with the best information they can have as they rise up as a community and decide to take this on. For those that are interested in getting involved in your program that you're going to have in Washington, D.C., how would they go about contacting you? Um, they can email us at uh, just go onto the website at uh, it's safeproject.us, and there is a email uh, capability there where you can contact us. And if that doesn't work, just email Sandy, S-A-N-D-Y, at safeproject.us, and uh, I'll make sure it gets to the right place. And we're, we're still working. We're, we're hoping to partner with a major organization in Washington, D.C. I can't say what that organization is yet because they haven't committed, um, but it's, it's a good one. And we're hoping uh, to be able to have this, again, convening later in the fall or early next year. So, Admiral, I... Uh I want to thank you for your time today and sharing your story, your story um, like ours. It's just uh, my condolences and, and my uh, – I've, I've got to say that I admire you for what you've done. It's um, in less than a year you've accomplished an incredible amount uh, here with, with your organization, and I'm sure you've changed lives out there. So so thank you. Thank you so much. Well, well that's our goal. You know, uh, truth be told, there are other organizations out there that are working alongside us. Uh, we don't have our ego attached to any of this. We are happy to, to work with anybody out there that is, is trying to help our country reverse this horrible epidemic and to help other families avoid this tragedy that's happened to us. So thank you, Greg, for what you're doing. Uh, and I really appreciate the opportunity to be on your program. As we conclude, just one last thing. What would you like people to take away from this podcast, Admiral? Um, I'd like for them to take away the fact that this is indeed a serious epidemic that is that involves uh, a, uh, a disease, not a moral failing, that we need to, to take this on the same way we would take on diabetes or cancer or any other medical challenge our country has. We need to do it aggressively, that it is very solvable. Unlike a lot of diseases that are out there, this is definitely solvable. And that if we all work together, set our egos aside, apply the right resources, we can do this. We've been joined today by retired Navy Admiral James Sandy Winnefeld, who shared his story in the Atlantic last November, just two months after losing his son to the opioid epidemic. It had an immediate impact on the opioid crisis. His family went on to found Stop the Addiction 
Fatality Epidemic, or SAFE, in memory of their son. This month, his organization published a guide to building your safe community, a three-step guide to organizing and galvanizing your community to make a difference in the opioid epidemic. Go to safeproject.us to learn more. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.